welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally if this is something that you find disturbing please feel free to stop listening at any point. Today I'm talking to Dr. Rachel Bergen. Rachel is a lecturer at Swinburne University in Australia and her work focuses on affirmative consent and consent law in the backdrop of some very exciting consent law reform in Australia. So she's done a lot of research looking at how the law questions and um upholds consent and what it really means and what it translates into. and i've linked some of it the ones i read in the episode description but you'll find out a lot about her work from this conversation so let's dive in hi rachel welcome to talking research and um how are you today i'm good thanks for having me i'm excited to to chat with you today great i'm really excited too and this is this is a sunday so it's even you know it's even more special that you're making time to start i just want to ask how you would introduce yourself um in a way that you like to be introduced well i guess um my my name is rachel bergen uh i have a phd in criminology and i'm currently working as a lecturer in law at swinburne university in melbourne in australia and uh my research is really around sexual consent law um and mm-hmm. the affirmative consent or this idea of, of positive or affirmative consent to sexual cons- uh, to sexual interactions and um yeah i'm really interested in in the law reform space around rape law more broadly so uh, mm. yeah that's me <laughs> perfect so how did you get into researching all of that i i started legal studies after um in university and i was learning from these amazing scholars who uh were researching in sexual violence in a variety of contexts and I think hearing them speak with such passion is what's what sort of sparked the passion in me. And then I um did my honors with uh Asha Flynn who is an associate professor at Monash University. Uh and and it during that time I started thinking about consent law and how it was working and yeah, I basically decided I wanted to learn about this and um did that through a PhD and here I am. So I kind of just ended up where I am, I think and you know sort of followed mm-hmm. my passion and interest and was lucky to be guided by some really phenomenal feminist researchers so what is consent i'm talking about uh, a legal perspective what is consent uh, in the eyes of law well that's actually such a complex question what is consent when we talk about consent in law it really dep- what we mean really depends on where we're talking about um and also what time period we're talking about when sort of rape became an offense consent was really about active resistance so women were expected to resist against a, a violent attack by a stranger um you know to to basically with their lives so that was the original sort of definition of what consent was about um obviously we've moved away from that in law uh, and and um in social contexts but really um the specifics of what it means is quite complex 
in Australia, every jurisdiction has a different definition of consent um, mm. and and that, that also contributes to a lot of the, the complexities around it. The um, I guess the ideal definition of consent uh, today is about consent that's actively given by all parties to a sexual act, and that's what we call affirmative consent. So it's the idea that that you know men and women are um, equally able to to actively give consent or um, decide not to participate in a sexual act, and that those should be treated equally before the law. Um, in this context, consent should be active through actions and words. It should be ongoing. So it's not something that you establish just once during the sexual interaction. It's something that you continuously give and take. Um, mm. And, and th- those should be really, I guess, the, the basics when we think about what consent means. Uh, how that translates into law is a, is a whole other issue. Uh, and that's some of the complexities that we're dealing with in Australia at the minute is is that translation. Um, Australia is actually a really interesting site for the exploration of consent law because there are so many jurisdictions dealing with with different definitions of the offending behaviour, so rape or sexual assault. Um, mm. And so how consent law interacts with other pieces of legislation provides some really interesting challenges really in in the Australian context. I mean when you say that I think of um, consent law and I'm just thinking of this give and take that you've mentioned and it's not really like that is it? I mean like um, it's, it's that's probably how the law is defined but when you're actually in that situation it's hardly like a legal negotiation. I mean I, I was talking to a friend once who said before he kisses someone like before he kisses a girl he likes to say oh can I kiss you and you know some people have said to him that it's not it's put them off or it's it's it like ruins the mood as he said but uh, that's how he prefers to do it because he'd just be safe but I know that that's not he's he's an odd one out in this situation because most people just sort of gauge the vibe or um sort of go with it so there's there's a bit of um I'm just thinking of how the law defines it as a very clear give or take. And then when people are engaging in such an activity, it isn't always like that, is it? Well, perhaps not. I think this is obviously one of the challenges when we think about um, when we think about consent and how it should be defined. And it's, it's certainly one of the criticisms that comes up a lot is, you know, oh, you know we're, we're killing romance or, um, and all these sorts of things. But I think what a part of the problem is, is that we we aren't armed or we're not arming young people in particular with um, the space to have a, a, a language to talk about sex that's comfortable. And I think so that, so it's, it's, you know, not just about what's happening in law, but, you know, the, obviously the social context. And, and also mm. when we're looking at consent in a legal context, we're dealing with, you know the the worst case scenarios it's when it's when someone has been sexually assaulted or raped and so we're not talking about those interactions where you might fumble through some awkward um discussions um mm. so so i think it's it's useful to think about the two separate realms of social interactions and and consent law as as really distinct problems or issues in a social context i think we need to start thinking about how we can equip people to have conversations 
about boundaries around sex and and I think um, that's really key in terms of particularly young women. There's, you know, a lot of this sort of taboo around talking about sex and that, you know, sex is something that older people or adults, you know, well, obviously not children are, can't engage in sex, but, um, you know, you know the, those teen years where they start exploring their sexuality. But actually we need to start empowering young people at that age to be talking about sex at home so that they become comfortable with, with those discussions and then they can have them with potential sexual partners. Um, so, you know, that's maybe something that your friend is better at than a lot of people, but we should try and normalise these discussions a bit, I think. is, is a, I think that's a really big part of, of changing the culture around sexuality more broadly as a preventative mechanism. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you need to have that conversation at all levels and take away this blanket of, um, you know, what really is so mysterious about such an interaction? and foster such conversations from the start. So what is affirmative consent? So affirmative consent is what I was sort of saying before. It's this idea that it's consent is actively given through actions and words um, and, and, and it's ongoing through a sexual interaction. But that's kind of its basic definition. But when we see that in law, there needs to be a few things that, that are um, expressed in, in legislation. So without a few, these things, uh, my argument uh, and my, the argument of some of my colleagues is that the uh, affirmative consent doesn't exist if there is no positive obligation on an initiator of sex to take active steps to make sure the other person is consenting. So things like asking or, um, mm. you know, having that discussion or that negotiation and and without it being an ongoing process. So it's not about withdrawal of consent. It's about giving consent. So those two things in particular are, are something I'm really interested in focusing on and how that sort of is is functioning in law is really one of the challenges we're facing in the Australian context in particular. In Australia, there are currently multiple um, or numerous reviews into consent law. Um, the the most progressed of those is in New South Wales, where um, hopefully we're going to see a, a raft of progressive reforms, although there are some concerns around that. But that was prompted by the advocacy of a woman called uh, named Saxon Mullins, who is a victim survivor, who spoke out um, on a national television program after the man who... Um, who she alleges uh, sexually assaulted her um, in an alleyway behind a nightclub mm. that she had been at um, when he was acquitted by a judge uh, in a judge-only trial. He'd earlier been convicted um, in a trial by a jury who did find him guilty and he spent um, a number of months incarcerated in prison. Uh, but he appealed and the, the second trial occurred with a, with a judge. The judge acquitted him. Uh, and drew on some really problematic ideas in acquitting him. So she referred to the um, the idea of contemporary morality, um, which is this idea that young people have sort of different and um, and almost like taboo ideas around sex, and that you know there's you know the older people might not consent to a specific type of sex in a specific context, but young people would. And she drew 
that idea almost exclusively, as far as we can tell, from the um, testimony of a friend of the alleged perpetrators. So it's not really grounded in any uh, research or fact. Um, And she also um, found or used statements like she talked about how Saxon was not consenting in her own mind, which is really problematic because, you know, um, consent is something that is subjectively held by the victim. You know whether you consent or not, and that is fact. The rape trial should be more concerned with worrying about um, is the the accused legally responsible for that. Um, in this case, the jury, the earlier jury, had clearly said yes, he was legally responsible and legally culpable, uh, and the judge disagreed. Um, that it, it's it's worth noting that the the judge's acquittal was actually. Um, overturned again at, on appeal by the prosecution, uh, but they refused to order a third trial because it wasn't in the public interest and was unfair to the, um, the accused perpetrator. Uh, so there's been no legal resolution to that case. Um, mm. And that's what prompted Saxon to stand up and say, you know, this something is not right here and, you know, we need to look into this. And the, the day after she uh, waived her right to anonymity, and spoke out on national television, the Attorney General of New South Wales um, referred consent law to um, the the state's law reform commission and they're, they're undertaking that review at the moment. So um, they are expected to release their final recommendations sometime early in the new year. Hmm. So from what you're saying, I'm trying to, you know, understand, I'm trying to see if I understand it. And in India right now, we're still pretty much at no means no. So if the woman, as it you know, mostly happens to be the victim, mostly happens to be woman. Mm. If the woman said no, then uh, you know, then then and and the and the perpetrator didn't listen. Then then it's a perpetrator, and then it's a rape. But um, affirmative consent means that the both parties have to be saying, have to be showing affirmation, right? Yeah. So so even if they're not verbally saying yes, go ahead um if it's if they're expressing that um that affirmation then you can then then the consent is said to be obtained right yeah so basically i mean no still means no under affirmative consent but there's no obligation on a person to say no the obligation is on both parties to give consent so um that can be through yeah specific words but it can also be through actions so it's the idea that active participation in sex is also your consent. So it, it challenges this, this idea that that submission or um, you know freezing and not doing anything, you know, those people haven't technically said no, but that's still not consent under, under an affirmative standard. So it's trying to respond to what we know are the really common reactions of sexual assault victims or rape victims to freeze or to, you know, just literally try and survive that, that um, experience by, by, you know, not yelling out and, and, and you know, trying to, to, to not, not make it worse sort of thing. Um, so it's trying to capture those cases and really respond to the fact that, that it's quite common um, for women in these circumstances to, to um, yeah, submit out of fear. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's, 
it's a great way of looking at it because you know no means no is obviously important and it comes into play in a lot of cases but there's also those people who can't physically say no such as disabled people or you know someone who's unconscious or so many examples of cases like that so um i want to go back to the case that you're mentioning and uh, in your analysis you found and i'd like you to talk more about your analysis as well in that you focused on victorian rape trial transcripts and um you found that a uh, woman's behavior in the hours and even days before the actual sexual act it was relied on by the defense in constructing this narrative around consent so in showing that while she may have not explicitly expressed consent during the the sexual act or during um you know her interaction with the alleged perpetrator but she expressed consent somehow mm. days before or you know hours before the act so yeah. what is that about so this this study uh, it draws on my phd research so i um analyzed 15 rape trial transcripts from the county court in victoria and one of the fu- sort of key findings was that these narratives of implied consent were drawn upon in rape trial so um we think about implied consent as being you know the women's conduct so basically what we sort of said women's behavior is implied consent or even women's existence of implied consent being uh, so it, women's existence has been constructed as implying consent um but it's worth noting that actually when we when we talk about implied consent we're talking about um the perpetrator's um subjective inference of women's behavior so they're using it to say that she implied we argue that actually what they're doing is saying i inferred from unrelated behavior a bunch of things but there were two ways that these implied consent narratives came out in the trial sample so um they that were used to argue that the perpetrator held a reasonable belief in consent which is a defense to the charge so the first was about women's um flirtatious behavior as as indicating consent and that really drew on a spectrum of women's like mundane behavior like um in in some cases um victims were um questioned extensively about how closely that she'd been walking with the perpetrator or next to the perpetrator uh, another case um was really focused on where in a room the victim was dancing in relation to the perpetrator which actually that was a really interesting case because it you kind of lose a lot of the context that there were lots of people dancing in the room that the victim's boyfriend was in the room and sitting next to the perpetrator so even if she was close by she was close by because that was where her partner was um and also you know the the fact that dancing or walking are not um indications of consent so these were acts that occurred hours prior to uh, the perpetrator raping her mm-hmm. another was another case um drew on the victim's sitting on a chair um or sitting on the arm of a chair as consent um and these all sort of were used to support the defense narrative that the person accused of the crime actually had a reasonable belief in consent so um that's sort of the most common um defense argument is that 
actually I, I truly and honestly believed in consent and that that belief was also really reasonable in the circumstances. So that's what enables them to draw on this type of behaviour. But the second way we saw implied consent sort of coming through is focusing on the relationship between the victim and the perpetrator. So um, this this idea that, you know, obviously you might you might automatically think of cases where it's a you know a husband and wife or something, but we also saw this um if it was, you know, between friends um or um or prior sexual partners or, you know, ex partners and things like that. So um so these sorts of contexts were really drawn on for the defense for the defense by the defense, sorry, as they constructed this idea of reasonableness around that belief. Hmm. So this reasonable um, idea that the the man in the situation has obtained consent, and they're arguing that oh, her behavior indicated that she was ready for sex, even if during the act she did not behave that way or even if during the act that was there was no consent the fact that she seemingly behaved in a way that seemed to the perpetrator like she'd given consent was enough for the for the judge in some of these cases um the women were actually asleep or unconscious when they were raped so then despite the fact that they were totally incapable of giving consent in that circumstance, the majority of the trial argument focused around what she had done in the hours prior to give him the idea that she wanted to have sex. And in Victoria, there's no obligation on the defence to point to steps that they took to ascertain consent. So they don't have to say, oh, I thought she was consenting, and then also I made sure she was consenting by doing this, this and this. They can just say, I thought she was consenting because she danced near me earlier and this and, you know, and just point exclusively to her behaviour that made, you know, that he drew on to come to this, you know, supposed um, conclusion that there was consent. So it seems like there still is this uh, huge, huge entrenchment of rape myths in the consent law in, um, you know, in Australia in that sense. And is this aspect of uh, law also under review like you said that a chunk of um, l- law has been um, recommended to be reviewed is that is this also being reviewed and do you think it's going to change yeah well it's actually in victoria it's not under review in victoria victoria is actually looked at a lot as being a leader in affirmative consent law and new south wales is currently under review and New South Wales have actually taken on board quite a lot of the Victorian law. But my research uh, with colleagues shows that, that Victoria is experiencing some of these really serious problems as well. Uh, and, and we're trying to highlight that so that we can try and get some more critical um, legal or legislation around consent law. In particular, we are advocating for mandated um, steps you know, and, and th- so basically that if a person wants to argue that they reasonably believed in consent, then they need to show that they took steps to make sure the other person or persons were consenting and those steps were themselves reasonable. So those two elements are really key 
in making affirmative consent law, but also making it making sure it translates in in you know substantive ways. Hmm. That that was going to be my next question. What would substantive? Can't say that word. Substantive reform look like? Is that is that pretty much it, or do you think there's more to add to that? Uh, there's a lot more to add to that. <laughs> um, so I I think the one of the big problems that we're seeing, um, you know, and I'll I use New South Wales as a, as an example because it's so it's a current review, but um, when when consent law was referred to the the Law Reform Commission, the terms of reference were so narrow, so they're only looking at consent law. They don't have scope to reform. Evidence law, for example, yet evidence law is huge has a huge impact on the way rape trials are run. So, um, in a, to address rape myths through law reform, we need broad broad terms of reference to be able to to go in and and, and look at how this is working. Tinkering only with a definition of consent is not going to produce a, a substantive. A, you know reform package it's not going to change that much mm. evidence law is basically the side of law that deals with what counts as good evidence or permissible evidence right yeah but also you know our sexual history evidence so um in in an article i had published with uh, associate professor asha flynn we talk about um the criminal procedure act so um which is uh what a discusses or you know implements limitations about sexual history evidence but we argue that that has actually not been adopted in the ways that perhaps the law was aiming to um so basically sexual history evidence um is about types of evidence that are trying to establish the the woman as being um accustomed to engaging in sexual activities or um any type of, of evidence that is unrelated, sexual, sexual history evidence that's unrelated to the facts of the case falls under that definition and the law prohibits questioning on that type of, of, of evidence if it's in relation to the victim's reputations. So if it's in relation to the idea of chastity or, um, or to establish that she's the top, literally this is a quote from the law, but is the type of person who is more likely to have consented, then those questions can't be be asked, um, so, or you can't bring up that that sexual history. Um, this has been actually an interesting uh, part of the law because there there is a lot of pushback around that, um, and we we argue that actually sexual history evidence does um, come into play too much in rape trials in Victoria. And in really problematic ways that actually do draw on um, trying to make women sort of seem like the people people who were, would be more likely to consent, even though prior consent to to other acts is completely unrelated um, to whether she consented to an act further down the line. So I'm I'm just trying to get that uh, thing you said about the kind of woman who would have consented. So is that distinction? Um, drawing a line between the kinds of wo- supposedly kind of women who would consent and the kind of women who wouldn't consent, or is it just that women are more likely to consent? I think it's it's about saying the type of person. So the the quote is that 
Sexual, sexual history evidence is not admissible to support an inference that the complainant is the type of person who is more likely to have consented to the sexual activity to which the charge relates. So that's what the wording is, um, which is actually quite complex. But what that means looks really different. So the judge is able to determine what type, what which evidence is is relevant and which isn't. So they can allow sexual history evidence to be heard if they deem it relevant to the to the case, the facts of the case. Uh, but in saying that. Um, it, we argue that a lot of it gets through regardless because it's sort of implied through questioning. So, um, you know, there's one case I can think uh, off the top of my head where the defence kept asking the, the survivor about about the relationship with the uh, an ex-partner and, and they asked her, you know, oh, so you had quite an active relationship. Well, what, what, what does that really mean, an active relationship, you know? Um, but they were really asking about, um, about sex, so they were asking if you had if they had a physical relationship. Uh, they they ended up asking, do you remember having regular sex uh, in the relationship? Um, this is obviously unrelated to the fact that later on down the line, um, the victim was raped by the perpetrator. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about how we can mainstream this idea of of affirmative consent because I'm thinking of you know friends listening who might want to understand what they're doing you know make sure that they're not really not uh, violating consent without realizing it yeah well i think that that you know as we sort of talked about before you know arming people with the language to have conversations is really important there's such a taboo around sex that we you know young people in particular aren't feeling the the ability to have those discussions and that's a problem that needs to be normalized but also um i think you know that if if a person if you can't are not satisfied that the person you are seeking to have sex with also wants to have sex with you if there's an inkling of concern that there's no consent then you do not act and i think so i think that's i mean the fundamental of what affirmative consent is that you have to be absolutely sure that the other person wants to have sex. And if you're not absolutely sure, then ask. Mm. I think, you know, it sounds I, – I, people get uncomfortable around this because I think because people are uncomfortable talking about sex. So, of course, people aren't going to be comfortable have, talking about sex in those sorts of, um, you know, contexts, but we need to sort of develop some type of language to be able to have these discussions uh, with potential sexual partners. Mm, yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, I'm thinking about the criticism that comes with this idea of consent and uh, I get that overhauling this suddenly and, you know, people who've been conditioned to look at sex a certain way, it is going to be transformative and it is going to take a lot of effort. It is something that's going to be a change in mindset. Um, But to me, it sounds really, you know, natural that... (laughs) you shouldn't be having sex with someone who doesn't seem like they're into it and you know it often more often than not it's not really hard to tell right like if someone is not really engaged like why would you want to continue but then I also think of all these aspects of society such as porn where very violent and very um honestly very misleading porn shows Mm. shows very impressionable people very impressionable especially young people that oh 
if you just force your force the woman she'll be okay with it so it seems like there has to be this societal shift in the direction of fostering more conversation and also just getting rid of these narratives around oh if you just um keep pushing she'll eventually grant consent yeah yeah i think you're totally right like i mean the the reality is that there's obviously you know we know that conservative uh, estimates as say that one in five women um past the age of 15 experience sexual violence so um and you know and when we think about that lots of women don't report don't self identify their experience as um rape or sexual assault so then don't also don't report in victimization studies and things like that so that you know that's how we know that it is likely a, a conservative um underestimation of the figures but you know if there's one in five people who are victims then we know that there are people who are perpetrators of sexual violence and there's a lot of people who perpetrate sexual violence uh and a lot of this is grounded in the fact that um men and women are not seen as as equal in sexual interactions men are seen as sexual dominance and women are seen as sexually passive and when we when we hold these types of stereotypes um as truth then of course women will not um you know be actively engaged in sex and of course they're not going to um initiate sex and of course they're going to give that sort of token resistance because that's that's the sexual script we've given to women to for them to occupy and when women deviate from that she's called um a slut or a whore or all these other horrific words that we use to describe only women and only women who are taking charge of sexuality in a different way um so i guess that binary idea of men as you know as initiators and as active sexual agents and women as passive actors in sexual interactions is a really problematic narrative that we need to interrupt if we want to start having you know safe sex really yeah yeah absolutely absolutely I'm thinking about you know researching this and looking at all these different cases and uh, all of these different trials and really disturbing stories of how women were you know basically re-traumatized in court and um, their stories discredited and dismissed and I mean it isn't easy for someone to go through obviously but it can't also be easy to witness so I'm just trying to ask if this work has been you know emotionally draining. for you. Yeah, it 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 certainly has. Um the, you know there's a reason I only uh, looked at 15 trials in depth for that study uh and it's not because I couldn't get access to more it was because it, you know there's a certain point we have to think about um health and safety um for the researcher. I think you know there is some pockets of um discussion happening around um self-care and those sorts of things for um researchers of this type of of um content uh but that's something that I think we need to have a methodology around I sort of talk about emotion as being a method in my research because it was something that um was a huge part of that process and it was something that I actually had to act out in in and self-care as well had to act out in these really specific ways I think that you know feminist methods need to um to be reconceptualize emotion as being as important as any other element of um of research 
um, but also developing like safe spaces for, for us to do the research. So um, I had access to rape trial transcripts, but it was really um, quite a, uh, a um, what's the word I'm after? Uh, a difficult pro- well, it was a really difficult process to get access to those transcripts. And then I had to view them on site at the court in a room on my own in these, you know, long um, sessions of, of recording notes and, and reading through the transcripts. And that was not a great or safe approach to the research because it's not safe to sit in the room and read a rape trial transcript, um, you know, seven days in a row. So I think, you know, thinking about how um, self-care and emotion become part of our method and be- and become part of our um, research process is really important and um, it's something I'm really quite passionate about talking about because it is really difficult and, you know, we, we hear a lot of women's stories and we they're horrific, they're quite horrific. So so it is something I care, I care deeply about. It, it has been an emotionally uh, draining experience. Um, I'm really happy to have put the PhD behind me and be, be able to move on to something different. But, um, I, you know, my passion is in this space, so I will continue forward. Uh, it's, the, um, it's the passion and, um, and also the great advocates we have in this space that, that push me forward in that way. Hmm. I mean, I'm trying to look at all your work and, you know, obviously you're doing a lot and you're also commenting. Um, there's there's a few media comments you've done and you're advocating for consent law reform. And um, what does the future hold for you in terms of research? Do you want to go down the same um, road further or do you want to go into something else? I definitely want to continue in this space. I think it's a really important time for consent law reform. and. As I said, in you know, and as you just said, in Australia, you know, it's a key time to push forward uh, in this space and this in this advocacy work. I am hoping to uh, do you know do some some further work on other jurisdictions around the world and how how consent law is working or isn't working across um, a variety of different jurisdictions, and working on projects with um, colleagues, including um, Asha Flynn, who I've mentioned before, and um, Jonathan Crow from Bond University, who's done a lot of research and work and advocacy um, with Bree Lee, who is a, an author um, who wrote about her experiences of going through the criminal justice system in her book, Eggshell Skull. Um, they, they collaborate on work in the Queensland context, and they've been really key in um, getting some, um, some movement on towards law reform in Queensland. So I'm excited to work with those colleagues on on some new projects and and hopefully we can start seeing some of these reforms coming through. Amazing, amazing. That sounds amazing. And I think finally what I want to ask you is if if the listener were to take one thing away or, you know, and one part of understanding away from this conversation about consent, would you like to sum up um from your research and your academic knowledge uh how this understanding of consent can be applied. I mean, we've talked about it during the conversation as well, but I just want to like sort of emphasize on practically what every individual can do to, you know, be in a consensual interaction at all times. Yeah, I think that when we, like in the social context, which, you know, is what I'm talking about when, when we're all engaging in a sexual interaction, I think we need to be able to have those discussions. And if, you know, that might be, 
you know, having discussions also unrelated to to sex, but just talking about, um, you know, what people enjoy, what they're comfortable with, having those boundaries set up and um, and having that that mutual language of the ways you can talk about things, that's really important. I think that if you don't feel comfortable having a discussion about sex, then you probably with someone, then you probably shouldn't be having sex with that person. And and if we start to benchmark ourselves in that way, then hopefully we can move towards a safer environment for everybody. You know, we talk about safe sex and we when we think of those words, we think about, you know, um, contraception and, you know, those sorts of things. But we really should be thinking about safe sex in terms of discussions of consent because that is just as important. We want to have safe sex for our minds as well and our hearts and our you know, and our bodies. So having those discussions is really important. I think in terms of what I want people to take away around the law aspect is I really want to start seeing um, some some more advocacy around this idea of active steps. So taking active steps to make sure the other person is consenting. I think without that in law, we do not have affirmative consent. I'm very clear in, in my work that, that Victoria where you know the study jurisdiction for my work does not have affirmative consent despite the fact that it's often referred to as a leader in consent law um so so that's where i would really like to start seeing some some further change you know new south wales are doing well to ha- be at this position where you know we've we've got this review and it's been a very thorough review they've done lots of consultations with community and stakeholders but it remains to be seen what the government will do. So, you know, we're we're battling uphill still, you know, with conservative governments um, who are now sort of tasked with making legislative change uh, based on the recommendations. So that's a concern. So, yeah, we're still fighting in these spaces, even though we're starting to get this recognition. Um, uh, but there are still real concerns. So from what we've discussed, what I've gathered is it's not just about the yes or yes and no's uh, during sex. Yes and no's are really, really important. Obviously, look out for them. But it's also about everything else. So even if a person is not really responding with a clear yes and no, you know, there are other very clear indicators in how they're participating. And um, so it's it's about this holistic understanding of consent. Yeah, very much so. And I think I think that, that that's what's key and what should be guiding us is that we need to encourage people to be absolutely sure. And if you're not absolutely sure, then and you can't point to these specific and clear things that are indicating consent and that you're taking those steps to make sure, then you stop and you ask. Okay, perfect. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up on. And uh, keep doing the good work, Rachel. Keep fighting the good fight. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you for your time today. Thank you for talking to me. And like I said, especially on a Sunday and especially on such short notice, it's so, so appreciated. That was Dr. Rachel Bergen. And we were talking about affirmative consent and consent law. So let me know what you thought of this episode and tune back in this coming Sunday. If you're in the UK, there is an election happening on Thursday and this is your reminder 
to vote to go out and vote and um it's not just your right it's also responsibility and a lot of things that we talk about in this podcast like supporting victims and law reform and policy reform all of that is very significantly affected by the government's policy and if it chooses to see the victims and what kind of support it provides so that makes it even more important to vote and to vote carefully really go out and vote and make a difference so that was everything and as always there is a link to services that support victims and survivors in the podcast description so please feel free to use that and let me know what you're thinking of the podcast and thank you for tuning in i am asmita and this is talking research